Oh, it's good to be together. There's nothing better than you. Oh, Lord, what great reminders. You turn seas into roads, into pathways. You brought your nation out of slavery through, through an ocean. And you've done the same with us, Lord. You've brought us out of the slavery of sin, and you've made a new path for us to be on. It's a narrow path, but it's a path, and it leads to your glory. And so, Lord, I pray that we would remember this throughout the week, that there's nothing like you. Oh, Lord, it'll beat back our pride. It'll beat back our arrogance. It'll help us with our frustrations of what's going on in America when we center our thoughts and our hearts on you. Lord, thank you for the gathering of the saints. Thank you that you commanded us not to to separate ourselves, but to assemble ourselves together, Lord. You know that's the best thing for us, to encourage one another, to be with one another. And so, Lord, thank you that this church has continued to meet these last few years, even in difficult times. May you be glorified in that. Lord, we think of our missionaries scattered around the world today, Lord, many of them suffering things that we have not yet seen here in Florida. We pray that you would strengthen them. Lord, give them strength as they reach out to uh, lost and dying people in their villages, in their towns, in their cities, Lord. Lord, please protect them and give them favor, Lord. Help us to give to the work of the ministry, both here and abroad, Lord. Help us not to be stingy with the gifts that you have given us, Lord. We want to see the gospel go forward. We want to see people identified with Christ like we'll see here tonight. We want to see that around the world. And so, Lord, help us to give, to go, to hold the rope, Lord. Father, thank you for this time in the Word. We're so excited to spend time in the Word. We know it is your Word, Lord. We're not looking to the worldly philosophies. We look to you and what you have to say so you feed our souls. We ask that you do that now. In Jesus' name, amen. We turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We will be in verse 6 through 13. And yes, I will get through those verses uh, today, Lord willing. Um, uh, and, and this is a passage that I entitled this, will, will You Be Foolish to the World for the Glory of Christ? Pastor Jerry alluded to this difficultness of this passage, and I have actually spent two weeks on it preparing for this message to get my mind around the depth of this text. But one of the things that helped me greatly was a trip I just took. Many of you know I was out at a pastor's conference teaching um, in California. And we have been watching California from here, and of course I have lots of dear friends. Uh, Gene and I spent 51 years uh, uh, out there before we moved here. Me, 51 years, I think you're a little less than that. Um, 51 years living in California, a lot of deep, deep relationships, schools planted, churches planted, and so forth. With this conference there in California, I was able to engage with many of them. I was asked to speak at many of the sessions and then sit down with these dear pastors. We had looked from afar at California and often frustrated with maybe some of the things the churches haven't been able to do there. And yet as I got with these pastors, my heart began to soften as I heard their stories. Many of them had difficult situations. Their churches were across the street from city halls. Some churches had sheriffs that drove by their building every day to make sure no one would meet. One pastor told me, he said, I've lost 79 people from my church to the, to the, city, to, to the state of Idaho. 79 people left his church. And he, this is what he said to me. Most 
never told me they were leaving. Another pastor said we lost 27 families who have moved out of California. Now, I know what you're thinking, maybe. You might have been saying, if I live there, I might move too. But is there a calling to the ministry? Is there a calling to the church? Do you believe God has called you here to Riverbend? We hope, if you're a member of this church, we would, we would probably ask you that question. Do you believe God has called you here? This is where God has called you to serve. And yet our brothers and our sisters, and particularly the pastors of these churches, are hurting. Many of these churches don't have large budgets where they can pay high-dollar attorneys to, to fight for them as they get sued by local governments. And so they've gone through a lot of suffering. It isn't just the COVID and local government exercising their unconstitutional authority. Many of them have fought fires, real fires. A man named Bill Brown that we trained at Cornerstone Seminary out there came up to me afterwards and he said, Pastor, my story is a little different. We were meeting. He lives in a little town called Grizzly Flat up in the gold country of California. The fires came through there. It came through so quickly they barely got out. He said, first it burned our church to the ground. We lost everything. The church was a total loss. A couple streets over was his house. It jumped several houses and burned his to the ground. <laughs> he got out with his family, his wife, and a couple children. He has two babies adopted from Congo with Paul and Didier's ministry. He was able to get out and their lives were spared, but he lost everything. We began talking, and he said, Scott, I lost my library. <laughs> We're going to try to help him with that. You know, libraries to pastors are they're quite a treasure for us. He lost it all. And I said, Bill, are you ready to quit? He said, not at all. I said, where are you meeting? Oh, we're meeting in people's houses that didn't burn. <laughs> and we're sharing the gospel. The point of all of this is, Pastors suffer. They suffer in ways that maybe you don't understand. And in this passage, this is the Apostle Paul sharing with this hard-hearted, prideful church of the calling of an apostle, of calling of a man sent to pastor a church that doesn't like him. <laughs> what a difficult ministry. And in these texts, you will see the sobering reality of God inspiring the Apostle Paul to rebuke a church for their false view, their self-deluded view of themselves, and come back to a biblical reality and serve Christ. This is not an easy passage. It has a strong rebuke. And though it is for a church 2,000 years ago, if you listen carefully and if you're honest with yourself, you'll see the American church in this. In fact, that's probably what you'll see first. <laughs> but then if we look a little closer, we may, may even see ourselves in this. And I hope if we have areas that this passage exposes, that we would be first to repent. Let me break down this passage in four thoughts. Number one, what God intends as a means of unity, Satan turns into a means of division. What God intends as a means of unity, Satan turns into a means of division. 
Paul's desire was for the Corinthians to see all of these analogies that he's made about himself and Apollos. He's been skillfully describing his role and the church's role. He's, he's talked about himself in chapter 3, 5 through 9 as God's farmer, right? He's a servant farmer. I planted and Apollos watered. Chapter 3, verse 10 he, through 15, he sees himself as a servant builder. We looked at that understanding what a builder goes through and, and how, God, how God is building the family, the church, the house of God. Then he moved on to that God looks at us as his temple and he's using these analogies to help people realize, this church realize what God is doing. And finally, our last message, when I was here two weeks ago, chapter 4, 1 through 5, he says, we are God's servants, we are God's stewards. In all of this, he's been doing this because there's factions, there's, there's factions of sinful behavior that are in this church. And these factions of sinful behavior are lining up under mere men, mere slaves, mere students, uh, uh, stewards. And, and what Paul is trying to do is get them to line up under Jesus Christ. Otherwise, they'll never be satisfied. Really, what he's doing is he's saying, you're rejecting the headship of Jesus Christ. And what's come from this, he said already several times in these chapters, is there's strife, there's jealousy, and there's division within the church. Everybody has their worldly views, and they're trying to mix them, integrate them with biblical views, and it's not working. Look with me at verse 6, and we'll start there. Now these things, brethren, he's still calling them family members, right? He sees them as Christians. I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sake. So right there, the Bible's telling you that this, all of that, all those figures, all those um, uh, analogies are all speaking of the work of Paul and Apollos. And this text is in relationship to them. He goes on to say, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one, no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. Well, certainly these things, as the verse start, is these various illustrations that he's used. I have figuratively applied to myself and apostle Apollos for your sake. In other words, I've gone from metaphor to metaphor, changing the illustration as I went along, attempting to help you see the God-given role that God put us in, both myself and Apollos, and you're rejecting me. He's coming at them very hard. See, pride is a dangerous thing, isn't it? And one of the first things that pride does is keep you from hearing the truth. See, pride says, well, this is a good message, but it's not for me. <laughs> I hope so-and-so's here, because we really needed to hear that message. See, that's pride. See, pride, pride stops your ears from hearing, your spiritual ears. Pride also causes people to follow leaders and not Christ. So easy for people to line up behind human fallen men and, and worship them in some way. Oh, these are, these are problems with pride. Notice Paul gives the answer in what we would call in the Greek two henna clauses. You might see that, you'll see it in the Bible, it says so that or that or in order that. You might be translated that way. And, and this is what means there's the desired result. So Paul says, let me give you two clauses that. That, that should help sum up the problem here in Corinth. The first clause, notice he says, so that 
in us you may learn not to exceed what is written. Well, what is written would be a real familiar term to anyone who knew the Holy Scriptures, right? It's translated, it is written. Probably uh, Jesus probably used that phrase more than anyone. It is written, it is written. He was familiar with that. This, 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 this church would have been familiar because Paul came teaching the Old Testament, teaching the authority of the Word of God while the New Testament was being written. And though there was no Old Testament passage attached to this particular verse, there's an understanding in a general sense that the Old Testament is teaching truths that are looked forward towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul's warning them, do not exceed what is written. Now, I think it's easy to determine that the Corinthians were, were going beyond what it was written. And you go, well, what does that mean? Well, the Bible teaches of what the right perspective of authority is. Uh, how, how to um, honor human authority that God gives you, but ultimately those human authority are leading you to the Lord Jesus Christ. They <laughs> rejected the human authority that God sent in their life, and they elevated others that God did not elevate. Now, the Bible tells us how to honor and respect leaders. 1 Thessalonians 5.12. Paul says this to the Thessalonica church, but we request of you, brethren, same terms, different church, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you. Notice that term, appreciate them. Not worship, not, not have factions. I'm of Paul, I'm of Peter, I'm of Apollos. You can see the problems within the church. You are to appreciate them. That, that gives the idea of gratitude that God sent pastors and leaders and elders into your life to lead you to the Lord Jesus Christ. The next phrase reminds us of what we're to do and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. So God has charged us to lead you, to protect you, to teach you, and we, other verses tell us in Hebrews chapter 13, that we will give an account of that. And then the verse goes on and says, let them do that with joy. Ooh. See, some churches don't let their pastors lead. They don't let that be joyful. And a lot of our dear brothers out in California are suffering from that. Can you imagine having 79 people or 27 families right here in this group leave and never tell their pastors they're leaving? Can you imagine what it does to you at night as a pastor? You don't know why they left. You don't know if they don't like you. They don't care about you. They're, they're politically driven. You have no idea. The Bible says to appreciate those who labor among you. See, but they did not honor the limits of the scriptures, right? They, they, they had this godless view of, of these pagan philosophers in their day whom they would exalt and they would find themselves disdaining men like Apostle Paul. Listen, when gratefulness is contaminated with pride, Christ's church will fall into fractions, into factions. When it, when, when it becomes contaminated with pride, there will be factions. Whenever you look at church split, splits, if you study them, and I've gone through a couple of them, the worst things that you can ever go through as a pastor. Each and every situation, there was extreme pride behind the split. And people began to line up on sides 
And Jesus Christ's church, who was bought with his blood, is now split. So I think Paul is saying here, look, the Bible teaches us that we are servants and slaves of righteousness, slaves of Christ. And I think what Paul's saying here is stop exalting the person who teaches and start following the one they're teaching about. Right? That's what he's after. And the Corinthians had taken what God intended for unity and they allowed Satan to turn it into a source of division. They're actually trying to divide Paul and Apollos. You can see it in the text. Well, we're of him. Well, what about me? Yeah, we don't like you. What awful, what, what a rejection of the grace of God. Notice the second hint of clause says, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. Well, the key words here are arrogant and against. <laughs> See, Paul knew that in their arrogance or this puffed up pride that they have, they would attach themselves to a particular teacher and find themselves against another. That's when you know you're out of line. That's when you know you exceed it, what the Bible says. You're a follower of men, not a follower of Christ. This is evil partisanship, isn't it? It's sinful, factitious behavior. We see it in the world, don't we? I mean, is, the Democrats and Republicans have always been miles apart, but can they be any farther apart now? Liberals and conservatives. I mean, just, we see all of that. We hear it. We're so sick of it. I, I, don't, I don't even turn on my TV anymore. I don't want to hear it. It's so bad. They can't solve anything. And yet, the church lives, some of the church lives by that stuff and, and enters into the church and pretty soon you have this factitious behavior. Christians should rejoice that God gave them leadership and that they stick to this book and this is what they teach. This is what they hold to. This is what we're commissioned to, not to our own thoughts that cause division. If I got up here and taught you my thoughts, and Pastor Brian was here last week teaching you his thoughts, guess what you're going to do? Well, I sure like Scott's thoughts better than Brian, or vice versa. But Brian, what did he do? He broke forth the word of God to you. And you lined up under the word of God. And that puts him and I and the rest of the elders and pastor teachers here in equality as slaves of Christ, ministers of the, of the mysteries of God to you. And this is where they were failing. Second thought, the dangers of pride, and listen to this, installed out discipleship. The dangers of pride installed out discipleship. Look at verse 7 with me. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Well, here's, here's what happens. When you think you have arrived, discipleship comes to an end. Well, man, the pastors are sure pushing this soul care thing. <laughs> Don't they know how long I have been here? I can quote the Old Testament backwards. <laughs> Wait a minute. See, when you get to that point where pride comes in, discipleship stalls. You don't need any more feeding while well, I go to church because, you know, I've got to check the box on Sunday. These guys, they're not really helping me much. See, that's a danger of pride. It'll stall out discipleship. Notice here, Paul realizes that the Corinth church has become arrogant. They're puffed up against him, right? They're, this is against Paul. 
And because of their pride was in, in people and not Christ, they lacked the proper perspective of the finished work of Christ and it resulted in this lack of worship for Jesus. Oh, man, I follow so-and-so. Oh, man, did you hear what the writings of Aristotle, of Plato, of all the great orators of the time, they were caught up in those things. And listen, because of the fall, look, our sinful flesh causes us to have a high view of ourselves. we got to fight it. I've told you many times, the most selfish time in my life is when I get awake in the morning. I'm tired, I'm hungry, i got to go to the bathroom, and i got a lot to do today. Pretty selfish, isn't it? That's when I start praying, right there. <laughs> right? And if we let ourselves go, right? If you, if you are captive with yourself and you have a high view of yourself, guess what kind of view you're going to have of everybody else? It's going to be a low view. And so here the Corinthians had this very high view of themselves. It resulted in a low view of the Apostle Paul. So instead of offering humble thanksgiving for the gifts the Holy Spirit had granted them, the Corinthian church now takes those gifts and sees them as a sign of a status of, of, of who they are, right? I speak in this tongue. I, I do this. I heal that. They can't even get in line. And we'll see that in 1 Corinthians 14. Their pride had taken them where they did not want to go. Well, Paul deals with this in almost letter, every letter he talks about in Philippians chapter 2. And he says, let this attitude be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself. Kenosis, he, he, he veiled his deity and came to earth and he lived the perfect life and he died a death, even the death of a cross. That's our example. Oh, but not the Corinthians and not proud Christians. We elevate ourselves so we can look down on others. Paul says to them in a very rhetorical question, he says, for who regards you as superior? The word regards there is, is the idea of distinguish. Who's distinguished you? <laughs> in other words, who is the one who makes you different? See, there is no ground for anyone to exalt themselves over another since, since our, our gifts and our differences ultimately come from God, right? See, the Corinthians were boasting in their own wisdom, which they believed now they had the right to examine Paul. Remember, we talked about that word, um, krino, but anacrino, meaning we have the right to examine you, Paul, because we know better, <laughs> I, this verse, this little phrase right here, for who regards you as superior, I, I wrote what I think in an English version, what I think what he's saying here as I studied this. This was maybe what Paul's saying. Who in the world do you think you are anyway? <laughs> what kind of self-deluded idea have you allowed as a servant to put yourself in a position to judge another servant? It's like the galley rowers in the bottom judging the other galley rowers. You think, you think you're better on your oar than me? What are you doing here? And if this first question exposes this sinful, presumptuous pride here, the second question exposes this ungrateful heart. Notice what he says. What do you have that you did not receive? And if... You did receive it, good question. Why do you boast as if you have not received it? There was a sense of false humility in these folks as well. Pride will always show a false humility. 
That's what it'll do. See, pride says, well, I've had a, I have to show humility, right? <laughs> but pride won't let you show a true humility, so now I've got to what? Show a false humility. And that's what he's after here. And when it is, when, when it is the time, when, it allow, um, when as you study these guys, and you study Corinthians as I look at the book, their pride now gets exposed. Chapter 5, they're going to let a man in their church live in immorality that the world doesn't even live in because they're so prideful. They're going to sue one another within the church and see no problem of it. Look, when we read this, when I see this phrase, what do you have that you did not receive? I mean, right now you've got to take count and say, oh God, what do, what do I have? And where did that come from? I wrote in my notes this. It said, when is the last time you, Scott, or you can put your name in there, experienced one of those rare, unguarded moments of total honesty? When in the presence of eternal God and the inward working of the Holy Spirit, you recognize that everything you have is a gift from God. When's the last time you did that? That you sat there and thought, my breath is from God. My spouse is from God. My children are from God. My income is from God. My house is from God. Everything good comes down from the Father of lights and whom we have to do with. Isn't that beautiful? When's the last time we did that? See, we have to do that regularly because pride's waiting. It's knocking at our door. It wants to take over us. It wants us to be like the Christian church that rejects people who are trying to lead us to Christ. And our pride takes us another direction. See, God causes all things to work together. And listen to this. And because he is perfect in all that he does, everything he does is for his glory and for our good. Some of you have gone through some hard things lately. See, we have to come to the fact that we go, God is perfect in all that he does. There's no way you can get over death of, of loved ones or loss of a loved one or uh, a relationship that crumbled or whatever it may be that you're going through, some hardship, financial difficulty. You have to get to the point as a Christian and say, my God is perfect in all that he does. That doesn't mean I understand everything he does because perfection is outside of my realm right now. I, but God, help me understand that you meant this for good. You meant this for good. See, pride doesn't let you go there. Pride says, God, why'd you do that? Don't you know who I am? I thought you loved me. See, pride takes a whole other angle at this. But we come and we say, no, as Christians, we humble ourselves and we say, look, God, I know that everything we have in life and godliness is because of your grace. It is not, it is not deserved. It is not earned. And so, Lord, if you send me difficulty, if you send me trials, let me believe that you're perfect and you have my good as your goal. See, those experience such abounding grace, we can live our lives from a holy and humble position with unrestrained thankfulness. The minute we are not thankful, brothers and sisters, it's because of pride. We've got to get our mind around that. The moment I'm not thankful, pride has now robbed me of the gratitude for God. And that's what's happening in this church. 
See, they began in their pride to see the cross as somewhat foolish to them. See, God says that there's only one way to me. It's through my son who came to this earth and he died on a cross for your sins. There is no other way. See, the world's not going to put up with us with this, right? First of all, they're going to reject heaven, but wherever this nirvana place they think is that we're talking about, it's unfair that there's only one way there. But see, we don't because we've humbled ourselves and we said, yes, God, you come your way. And the gospel is not elementary to us anymore. The gospel is the center of all doctrine and theology. It's the, it's the gateway to understand all the truths of God. See, pride doesn't let you go there. I had a man leave our church one time years ago. And he told me, he says, Scott, I'm not staying here because all you preach on is the gospel and the glory of Christ. I said, could you put that in writing? <laughs> I asked this dear brother, I said, well, what else? Tell, tell me how you're going to understand these deep truths that you desire if it doesn't go through the gate of the gospel and the glory of the cross. How, how are you going to get there? He left and, man, his life fell apart. And this doesn't happen to everybody that leaves our church, but... This particular man, life just fell apart and exposed pride and arrogance in his life. And see, that's what he's doing. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? And why are you boasting like you got it? Like, look what I got. I, I have these gifts, and you're over there, and I'm up here. Oh, this will wreck a church. It'll wreck a church. Instead of recognizing that there's gifts are the handiwork of God, Whatever you have, whatever gift, and, and don't say I don't have one, because then you have to say the Bible's not right. Because the Bible says every believer has gifts given from the Spirit. And, and so when we look at those gifts, we go, God in his handiwork designed a gift for me to serve him and glorify the Lord. And when you, when you get a hold that God has given you gifts to serve him, you stop looking down at others because you realize, oh God, I need help in this. <laughs> I know you've given me some gift, but I'm, I'm dangerous with this thing. Will you help me? Will you bring men women into my life to help disciple me? But the problem is, here's what happened to the Corinth church. Instead of giving thanks to God for the gifts, they took ownership of their gifts. And that caused them to look down on men like Apollos and Paul and Peter, or at least faction them out. Remember this, brothers and sisters. Listen, grace leads to gratitude. If we understand the doctrine of grace, it leads to gratitude. If you don't get to gratitude from grace, you've got grace wrong. Doctrines of grace cause believers like this church to praise God that he saves people in full depravity with no will, a corrupted will, no way to choose God, and he has to come and get us ourselves, himself. Otherwise, we perish for eternity. That type of grace makes you full of gratitude. And it makes you use your gifts right. And stop looking down your nose at people. But when you take fallen human wisdom and you try to blend them or integrate them with biblical truth, you'll come up with this self-sufficiency, boasting and judgmental type of view. But grace, grace delivers us into, into equality. We had a wedding here yesterday. 
And I looked at that couple, Andrew, our dear brother, and his bride, Jenny. And I remember studying with them and saying, Andrew, 1 Peter 3 says, be a student of your wife. Do not abuse her. Do not use her improperly because of her uh, submission to you. She lines her affairs up unto you. She is a weaker vessel, the Bible says. And that's because she willingly obeys God and puts herself in a vulnerable position. And then the Bible says that because she's a joint heir of grace, that grace brings you into equality with your spouse in our position before God. Look, us pastors and elders here, we don't see ourselves in some exalted position. We're galley rowers. But we're rowing together because grace makes us equal as leaders. And I don't, and I've told you this many times, I don't see this position as any greater than your position. I just have a different calling than yours. And so I fulfill mine here. You may fulfill yours down the hall or washing somebody's feet yesterday or helping with a wedding or whatever it may be that God has gifted you in. That's a different calling. And grace helps you do that well without pride. Does that make sense? Somewhere along the line, they lost that. Look at verse 8. I've got to get going. You are already filled. You have already become rich. You've become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings, because they haven't, so that we also might reign with you. Now Paul turns to what I would call spiritual sarcasm, right? He's got to the point, their pride has brought them to this point where he says, you're already filled, you already arrived. Notice he uses that adverb already twice in there. It's this eschatological view. You're already fit for heaven. You, you don't need to grow. You do, oh, you don't, Bob doesn't need discipleship. He's ready to go anytime. That's how they come. He goes, he's sarcastic here. This is not a compliment. He's saying, look, you think you've already been filled, right? The word filled here is used for being satisfied by food or drink. You've already reached your heavenly status. But Jesus himself says this. Listen to this. That Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who continually is the idea. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not blessed of those who, well, I'm already here. I'm just waiting for the Lord return. I'm in my easy chair, just, you know, easy chair clicking TVs. Yeah, what are you doing for the Lord? Just waiting for him. I've already arrived. I'm already there. That's a lazy, lazy Christian. And he should really begin to look internally whether he's even saved. Blessed are those who continually hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then the verse says this, for those are the ones who will be satisfied. Those are the ones who will experience grace and mercy even in this life. There's There's an understanding in this verse that the Spirit has provided everything you need through the Word in Christ. And such gifts should be forever humbling and leading us to greater discipleship, constantly being gospelized in new areas in our life. That's the idea here. Can the message of the cross ever reach its fullness, right? Oh, we hear songs, right? How old are we? I mean, some of us have been in the faith for 50 years, right? We're singing songs up here and we're going, man, that's good. That's encouraging. I'm thinking of Bible verses as the songs are going by. Wow, that's Egypt coming out of there. That's, that's uh, Ezekiel and bones become an army. I'm, I'm thinking of all those passages as they're singing these songs. Because the gospel never gets old to those who are not caught in pride. Notice he says, you have already become rich in verse 8. 
Well, certainly, look, people who are in Christ were the richest people in the world, right, positionally. We have Jesus Christ. However, we must understand this, this spiritual phrase, already, not yet, right? You say, so Scott, I haven't quite experienced these wealth that you're talking about. Well, it's spiritual here on this earth. Now in heaven, I mean, we're so wealthy, we pave streets with gold, <laughs> Right? Come on down to the mansion, uh, take Gold Street 1, turn on right. You know. I mean, it's an amazing thing when you look at heaven. But, but see, so we have a kind of already but not yet understanding of this. I'm rich because I'm in Jesus Christ. <laughs> what can the world do to me? I, I'm, I'm the most wealthy person in the world. The most holy person in the world is right where you sit because God indwells you. And yet we wait for the Lord to return, but yet... Here he says, look, you've already become rich. You already think you arrived. The church in Laodicea had this problem. Jesus warns them, Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, because you say I am rich and I have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You go, well, does people really think this way? Yeah. Jesus takes on the church of Laodicea. Hey, we're wealthy, man. We have it all. You're blind, naked, and dead, is basically what he's saying. Your lamp has gone out. Next notice, he says, you become kings without us. I think this is another eschatological view here. You, you're acting, in other words, you're acting like the kingdom of God is on earth here, and you're reigning right now with him. Man, this is a sharp rebuke, isn't it? So Paul's saying your wisdom and your pride, your worldly wisdom and your pride, have become like heavenly crowns on your head already. And you think you gained this without our assistance. See, this is the message of the prosperity gospel. This is why it's so dangerous and why we, we teach against it, because it leads the lost even farther away from Christ. The message of the prosperity gospel is that heaven won't be complete without you. And, and if you can muster up enough faith, you can have all the heavenly promises right now. You're not rich and wealthy because you don't have enough faith. That's what they teach. And then we say, well, God might want you dead for his glory. Right? That's what the Bible teaches. He does entrust some, maybe some in here, um, with more money than others. But he also may want some of us sick or to go through a trial to demonstrate our love for the Lord Jesus Christ, demonstrate our dependency upon him so others that look on say, oh, can I meet with you? Can I, can I help understand how you trusted God through such a difficult time? But notice Paul's kindness is still in this verse. He says, I wish that you had become kings so we might also reign with you. <laughs> Paul wishes that they had such a holy position. <laughs> I think in some ways, I wish the Lord has returned and, and we were serving the Lord and reigning with him. But that's not the fact. You're just acting out of your arrogance because the physical kingdom is not on earth yet. Our, go, our job now is to submit to the glory of Christ through the servants that have brought, been brought our way. So clearly, the apostle is pointing towards discipleship. You've stopped growing. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 3 that when the law, when the teaching of God is read, a veil lays on their hearts. And I think that's true with pride, right? When pride is in the heart, 
when the word of God is taught, a veil lies on them. And they don't see the glory of God. They don't see it with an unveiled faith. They don't see in a mirror, glory to glory, being transformed, continual print, a present continual tense, being transformed in the glory of the Lord. They just think they have arrived. And of course, that's where Corinth was. Third, a dying fool for Christ is not part of excuse me, a dying fool for Christ is not part of a self-righteous gospel. A dying fool for Christ is not part of a self-righteous gospel. Well, Paul now switches to all present tense verbs from verse 9 through 13, and we'll move through these fairly quickly, but he begins to bring them back to the understanding of the apostles were a God-given men, sent to them, called to them. Notice verse 9, look what he says, for I think, of course the Lord's inspiring his thinking here, God has exhibited us apostles last of all. Listen to this. As men condemned to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, both angels and to men. See, Paul's reminding the Corinthian believers that they and the apostles have not entered a time of reigning yet. In fact, God has called them to the arena of death. Now, you may not get this. (laughs) I had to read and read and read, trying to get my mind out of what he was doing here. But as I began to understand it, I think what he's doing, this is my thoughts here, I think he's bringing in the Roman experience. So, so here he brings in this arena type of view. Let's say this was the arena. This was the floor down in the bottom. Well, the dignitaries and the kings and, and those of prestigious uh, wealth, they would come in and they would get prime seats all around the arena. And then others would fill in, and they would fill the entire arena. And guess who the last ones were in? The ones that get eaten by the lions. (laughs) The ones that get killed by the soldiers. There may be another illustration he might be thinking of. When Rome would be out conquering different places, they would come back, and and they would make a parade as they came into town or into Rome. And they first would bring the soldiers who fought the battles— And then behind them would come the kings and the dignitaries, all dressed to the hilt, riding in their chariots, coming in behind them. And then the last that come in the parade, all in chains and all shackled and all in slavery, were the captives. And they were bringing them them, to kill them in front of the people to show them what they did to their enemies. I think that's what Paul is talking about here. Let me read that verse to you again. It says, I think... God has exhibited in us apostles last of all. (laughs) We are designated to die. We're men condemned to death. What contrary thinking than the Corinthians. They're saying, hey, we're everything. We got the gifts. We speak in tongues. We do all this stuff. And he goes, well, that's good. We're here to die. What, what a comparison, right? See, this is what the, the cross is so scandalous, right? Pastor Gary read to us today this great text. Uh, Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Crosses are death. Christian life is meaning die to yourself. And, and Gary said that in his prayer. He said, Lord, teach us to die to ourselves. Teach us to put you first. And see, Paul said, look, I, I have a different view of this. I'm coming to die. That's what God sent. You want this man who speaks well, looks well, articulates well, and I've come to die for you if need be. Isn't that amazing? Don't you want to be a, have a pastor like this? 
Oh, what a man who loved the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said to the disciples about the context is not lording it over. He said, it is not this way among you. You're not to lord over. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. See, this is what Paul understood. This is the way he was to live his life. But that wasn't good enough for the Corinth church. They wanted more. And their pride, they were embarrassed of Paul. Paul in 2 Corinthians wrote what he believed their view was. 2 Corinthians 10.10, he says this, For they say, now he's talking about what they say about him, His letters are weighty and strong. You guys might add that it goes too long. (laughs) And then he says this, listen to this. This is his church who he, he spent so much time with. They said, but his, personal, his, but his personal presence is unimpressive. Talk about looking on the outside. And then they add this. How would you like this one? And his speech is what? Contemptible. We can't stand listening to you. Well, there's a good church to take. <laughs> Who wants to go to seminary? <laughs> We're going to send you to California. Right? Because there may be a time we're going to send missionaries and church planners to California. I think that might be coming. But this is what you might be up against, right? Now, notice he goes on to say, because we have become spectacles to the world, both to angels and men. Well, here this word spectacle, we get our word theater from. So whatever happened in Rome, um, soon the whole world knew about, knew about. So he used the word cosmos, which is even bigger than the world. That's the universe. And so the whole universe is looking on. We become spectacle to the whole universe, both angels and men. And this is an amazing statement because the Bible tells us in lots of places that angels are watching, right? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, that they're ministering saints to us. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, says they look and see how we're handling grace here. They long to look into that. And so here is the idea, you Corinthians, you want the box seats for all the glory, but we've come to die for Jesus, what are you here for? The box seats? Or are you ready to die for Jesus? See, that's what Gary, why Gary read that passage. He didn't have any idea. I think I was going to be teaching. See, God laid that on his heart. Come to die. Is that who we are? And yet God is so gracious. You're alive. You're going to go eat lunch after this, aren't you? You're already hungry because I'm talking about it. God's very gracious to us, isn't he? Look at verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake. You are prudent in Christ. We are weak, you are strong, you are distinguished, and we are without honor. Paul begins to expound on what he means to become a public spectacle in comparison to their self-righteousness. First off, he says we're fools. Are you willing to call yourself a fool? Because here's what a fool is, according to the word, to the world. We believe in one way to the Father. They'd say that's foolish. Do you know who I am? I pay taxes and I'm a Republican. You mean I can't get to the Father because of those things? Then you're a fool. You you mean that Jesus is God and he is the only way to the Father? Do you mean there's no other way to go to heaven than that? They're going to call us fools, aren't they? You mean you're going to hold to an archaic view of marriage from the Bible? You're a fool. You mean that I can't be whatever gender I want to be? 
according to the Bible. You're a fool. See, it's going to come down to that, brothers and sisters. Our, our, our friends, our pastors in California are on the front line of this stuff. And what happens in California is going to happen here someday. Are you ready to be a fool for Christ? Notice he says, but you are prudent in Christ. Well, at first glance, you kind of think maybe that's a compliment. Maybe he's sneaking one in. It's not. <laughs> the Corinthians who were, if they're truly saved in here, in their carnality, they're missing Christ. They're missing the wisdom of Christ. And he's, and he's in a way, given a plane on words. You think you're prudent. You think you're really wise in Christ, but you're not. Because if you were, you would see that God sent us as his servants, as his slaves, as his stewards, who are willing to die for your sake in the cause of the gospel. You're not very wise. He says, we're weak, but you're strong. Paul's weaknesses reflected his view of the scriptures. He, he, he believed he had nothing to offer God. I, I'm here. I'm, I'm filleting myself out, God. I got nothing to offer you. I'm a fool for the cross. That's all I am. I got nothing in the world. Go, whoa, that's pretty weak. Because I'm weak. But you seem to be strong. You, you seem to be those people that say, yeah, Jesus plus my gifts. He's got to let me in. Right? They looked at themselves strong in that way. So in other words, we're called weak because we put no confidence in the flesh. We put no confidence in our flesh. Yes, look, believers have power in Christ. We, we have power in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We experience that. But we come to him not in our self-righteousness, not in worldly wisdom. We come his way. We don't add to the scriptures. Look, he says, you're distinguished. But we're without, without honor. The word distinguished there is um, endoscus. It is the root word to glorious. He says, you think you're glorious. But you know what we think ourselves? Pretty much despised. <laughs> I mean, are they on separate planets here? Something about women and Mars and something like that? Corinth and, and Paul? They're on totally different planets. You think you're going to be glorified. Paul's going, we're despised. We're not even in the same building. We're not in the same zip code when it comes to how God views us. See, he's trying to get them back to Christ. This church is going to fall apart. Satan's going to have its way if they don't turn and repent. And praise God, we see in 2 Corinthians that many of them do. And they return to the Lord of their soul. Fourth thought, and I've got to hurry. Only gospel-saturated, Christ-loving, faithful followers of Christ, listen to this, will stand when persecution comes. Well, now he starts to really drop the comparisons between the Corinth church and the suffering apostles, and he starts to focus in on himself. He turns to all present tense verbs here, plural ones, so he's bringing in some of the apostles, but he's really looking at himself in a lot of ways. Look at verse 11 with me. To this present hour we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. Verse 11 tells us that the apostles are hungry and they're thirsty and nobody's given them that stuff. Can you imagine, you know, um, one of our pastors puts out an email and says, I'm out of food, to our church. I mean, trucks would show up at our doors knowing you people. 
You would take stuff out of your own pantry in your kitchen. You would come and you would minister to us. Think how prideful this church is. He says, look, we don't have food. We're thirsty. In fact, we're homeless. (laughs) They don't care. I think it's a contrast because in verse 8, they're filled, right? Verse 8, we've we've arrived, we're filled. He goes, well, you may be filled, but we don't even have clothes fit for us. Then he uses this word roughly treated. See it there? The word literally means to strike with a fist. We'll get into this in 2 Corinthians someday, and he goes down the list of all the things that have happened to him. And you'll say, Scott, how do you know this word? Well, the Greek word is not used very many times, but let me show you where it is used so we know and understand what it means. Matthew 26, 67, Jesus is on trial. They spat in his face and beat him, here's the word, with their fist. That's the same word. So Paul says, we're roughly treated... Can you imagine me coming back from California and I'm all beat up? And you go, what happened? Well, they beat me with their fist out there. What would some of you do? I'm I'm actually scared what some of you would do. (laughs) You go, can a church get this bad? Yeah, here it is, 1 Corinthians. This is where pride will take you. And and they have no home. (laughs) They have nothing, right? If the Apostle Paul showed up in the church the American church today, let's broaden it here. What would he say today over the division of vaccinations and masks? What would he tell us? There are massive, we're talking to pastors about that because it's it's such a difficult thing out there. They said, look, it's, it's so bad out there. We have divisions within our churches now over these items. What would he say? What would he say to low attendance where people are perfectly healthy that won't come to church and, 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 and reject the command of, of Hebrews 10 to assemble together because I need you because you sharpen me when you're here and I sharpen you? What would he say? Remember, he's already said, I'm last and I'm going to die. What, would he, what do you think he would say to that? Well, he did say some things. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, for Demas, now listen to this, having loved this present world, when you love the world, you handle difficulties way different. When you love your life and your breath and, and you're so afraid that you may die, you're going to handle things different. And guess what Demas did? He has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Deserted. Thessalonica was one of the last churches to fall under persecution Demas figured out, well, I'm going to go there because I'll be safe. It might be Christians coming from California running to Florida. And maybe we should ask them, why are you running? Did you talk to your pastor or pastors about leaving? Verse 12. i got to put the pedal down here. And we toil, working with our own hands. When we, when we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. Paul mentions many times in both letters that he earned his own living with his hands. And this is not a statement of pride. I think he's revealing the ungrateful hearts of a very wealthy church. He has to get money to do his ministry from Philippi and Colossae, these churches that are very blue-collared, if even that, that work in the mines for Rome, that, that go and mine these hills so Rome can build their war machine. They're not wealthy people, but they're financing Paul's ministry, his church planning ministry of the gospel. This church is doing nothing. And it makes you ashamed, doesn't it? 
Do you give to the Lord? Do you give to the Lord? So the ministry goes on. I, I am so grateful for this church. We have talked many times as elders that we thank the Lord that God puts on your heart to give. So Pastor Brian last week, me this week, all the men that are teaching seminars and around, that God has let us have a freedom to study God's word so I can stand in this pulpit and say with, with humility but with passion, thus says the Lord. Paul couldn't do that. Paul is trying to study, trying to t- understand the word of God, particularly Old Testament, bring it into the light of the gospel, trying to teach these people why he's sowing tents together to make enough of living, enough money to eat, although he's homeless himself, and the church is going, what? what? We already gave it the office. This was happening. Notice this whole phrase, toil. The word toil there, it was a word used for slave labor of doing things that others despised. <laughs> he goes, we're toiling. I remember when Gina and I started our first church plant, well, <laughs> there were Sundays where I was plunging the toilet and then preaching right after that because that was, <laughs> there was just nobody else to do it. Gina is the children's ministry because it was mainly our children and a few others. And so you're just doing everything, right? And you don't complain about it. You just look back later and go, wow, how did we do that? We're so grateful for the giftedness of a church that says, look, we'll help with children. We'll, we'll help with weddings. We'll help with funerals. Can I make food from somebody? Can I be involved with greeting and parking? And, and can I help the elderly? Can I wash feet on Saturday mornings? What can I do? See, not this church. They didn't care about the toiling of those who loved them. And look, he says, when we were vowed, we blessed. And when we were persecuted, we endured. Well, Peter jumps all over this and says in 1 Peter chapter 2, for we have been called for this purpose to suffer like Christ, who committed no sin when he suffered. We had no deceit was found in his mouth when he suffered. And while he's being reviled, he did not revile in turn. While he suffered, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. And he knew, Paul knew that Jesus said, blessed are those who curse you. Bless, Bless those who curse you and pray for those who persecute you. Look at verse 13 with me. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as scum of the world, dregs of all things, even until now. So you want to be a pastor. Anybody ready to sign up for Christ Theological Seminary? We're taking applicants right now. Anybody want to go to a missionary field? When's the last time Riverbend put on a missionary? When's the last time we signed a new man up for seminary classes? See, it's not easy. And, and I know you've got to be called, and you've got to know that God's calling you, and he's lining your life up by his grace to do these things. But this is the type of men that do this. They, they're, when they're slandered, instead of slandering, they try to reconcile, right? You know, have you ever done that when somebody's so mad at you? You're, all you're trying to do is, hey, brother, hey, easy, easy. Let's, let's work through this. Let's, let's figure this out. The Bible has an answer. That was Paul. And then he's called these two terms, right? Scum and dregs. <laughs> They're very similar words and similar in definition. And they mean, here's what, it's so sad. I, I, bear with me, I know lunch is coming. It means the stuff you wipe off your boots. If you live on a ranch, you do that a lot. You wipe stuff off your boots. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Paul says that's what we've become. The world looks at us as just something that's on your boot. 
What a view. Sign them up. Get back there, Brian. Get the list. Go in for seminary. Who's coming? Who wants to be on the boot of the world? That's what your pastors are. When we do unsaved funerals, and man, we did a great wedding yesterday. It was worshipful. But when we do unsaved weddings, we're like dregs. I don't know how many funerals, particularly funerals, I've done when it's done. I'm like standing over the corner. And the whole group's over there. <laughs> like I got COVID. <laughs> they don't want to talk to you. They don't want anything to do with you. In fact, they're scared to death of you. I'm going to get something from that guy. But Paul said, look, 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. Thank you. That's what it says. So Satan is the god of this world. He's the ruler of darkness. His kingdom can't stand the light. He attempts to destroy the light. And he's trying to do that in American church today. He wants to integrate worldly wisdom with some poor hermeneutic of the Bible. He wants to put that together so to destroy the view of Christ. And he's doing a great job. He's doing a great job. But listen, brothers and sisters, if you're saved, God has not abandoned you. He's your master. And he's a good master. And he's going to take care of you. And he will see us through. So if you are fighting your flesh, repent of that pride. Press on with the gospel because Jesus is coming. The master's coming back. Trim your wicks. Fill Fill your lamp with oil. That means the word of God and prayer. And be ready. And we can live in this world. Father, thank you for this message. It's hard, Lord. It points his finger at us in some ways, Lord. It certainly is exposing the American church right now. Oh, God. Help us to be a church where leaders joyfully serve the body of Christ. Help us to be a church that puts away pride and factions and ugliness that trickles in from a fallen world, Lord. Let us not fall into that. Keep us holding to the authority of the Word of God and the glorious person of Jesus Christ. Let us not depart from that, Lord. We want to be useful to the Master. We want to have our wicks trimmed and our lamps filled with oil. We want to be, be in the fight, in the race. We want to be running when you come, Lord. Lord, we pray for our friends and pastors in California and around the world who are under such pressure. Cause them to stand, Lord. Surround them with godly people in their church that will stay with them and work with them and pray with them and repent with them and walk with them in Jesus Christ. And Lord, help us do the same here because it's coming our way. We love you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your patience and grace with us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. We